And let's just say another word of prayer as we approach our time of teaching this evening. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for all of your choice servants in this life. We thank you from your servant Abel and the godly line of Seth through Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Lord, through to your apostle Paul and down through the corridors of your church, you have raised up a people for yourself and you have set apart the godly for yourself. We thank you tonight for your servant Dietrich Bonhoeffer and we pray that as we consider briefly his life and his words, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts that as he followed Christ, so may we. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's a joy for me tonight to offer to you a glimpse of one of the finest theologians of the 20th century and, more importantly, one of the boldest witnesses of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And tonight, I'm only going to offer you a a brief glimpse, a taste, something to whet your appetite for more. Um, Even though Bonhoeffer has gained considerable attention in recent years in scholarship and even in the popular spheres, he's still largely unread and he's still largely unknown by the average churchgoer. And we are the poorer for it. And uh, I hope to, to help you tonight to value something that I think is infinitely, or at least immeasurably value, uh, valuable. Bonhoeffer was one who wrestled fiercely with a deeply compromised church. He fought for the integrity of the church, and he looked deeply into the riches of the church. And I know a few others who were so passionate, was so passionate about the church of Jesus Christ and understood why it should be celebrated the way that the Word of God enjoins us to celebrate it. I've entitled this lecture tonight, Sheer Life. This isn't, by the way, a phrase from Bonhoeffer. This is a phrase from uh, Bonhoeffer's theological mentor, Martin Luther. Christ, writes Luther, is nothing other than sheer life. And I hope to set before you tonight a mere glimmer, pointing you to a greater light that is the essence of Bonhoeffer's understanding of the church of Jesus Christ. It is, he would say, sheer life. Well, I want to proceed tonight by weaving together Bonhoeffer's thought with the shape of his life, give you a very brief sketch of his life as I weave into that Bonhoeffer's theology, however, uh, however briefly I do it. Bonhoeffer was a man who was born into privilege. He had every opportunity to uh, make much of himself in this life. He was the a son of a family of the solid middle class, and he came from a distinguished line of professors and teachers and physicians that went before him. And in this way, Bonhoeffer was born for material success. Bonhoeffer was born to succeed in this world. He was born in February 1906 in Breslau, and his father 
Carl Bonhoeffer, when Dietrich was just a young boy, was offered a post of professor of psychology and of nervous diseases at the University of Berlin, a very prestigious post, a very important man. His mother, Paula Bonhoeffer, was also very learned. She was a teacher by trade, and uh, their household, which was large, he had a number of brothers and sisters, he himself was a twin, uh, became a university in miniature. Bonhoeffer was taught to learn, and he was taught to put his brain to to good use. That is, the expectations of the Bonhoeffer household were by no means low. As a child, Bonhoeffer was already reading the great poets, the great Greek and Roman poets, and when he had leisure time, you would find the young Bonhoeffer reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. His sister, uh, his sister Zabina recalls Bonhoeffer reading Uncle Tom's Cabin as a boy on holidays. Today we might imagine our children, you know, and their thumbs getting exercises on their electronic devices. Bonhoeffer was reading the greats. As an adolescent, Bonhoeffer was already well immersed in all of the great works of German literature and philosophy. He was reading Schleiermacher as a teen, he was reading Goethe, he was reading Schiller, he was reading Max Weber, all these things. And he was an accomplished musician. As a young man, Bonhoeffer was playing Mozart's uh, sonatas. That is to say Mozart, or Bonhoeffer that is, Mozart too. Bonhoeffer was a smart kid. But his home nourished this. His home life fostered the intellect and the soul. And as a child, Bonhoeffer simply wasn't allowed to squander his, uh, his intellectual gifts. Patient, loving, disciplined home life made Bonhoeffer into the theologian that he was destined to become. Not, however, that his family wanted him to become a theologian. At 17, Bonhoeffer enters the University of Tübingen. He goes there to study theology, but that decision was rooted in large part in an earlier and altogether difficult experience. At 12 years old, Bonhoeffer was crushed with the news that his brother, Walter, had succumbed to his wounds received in the First World War. And the effects on Bonhoeffer are indelible. It never leaves him. And just two years later, Bonhoeffer makes the decision to become a pastor and to become a theologian, much to the chagrin and the disappointment of his family. Mom and dad, I want to be a pastor. I want to be a theologian. To which his, his uh, otherwise noble parents respond, Dear Dietrich, the church is a poor and a feeble and a boring and a petty bourgeois institution. To which Bonhoeffer responded, in that case, I shall reform it. Well, those words from the young Bonhoeffer had far more weight than either he or his parents could have guessed. And from the beginning, Bonhoeffer was increasingly convinced of the overwhelming wonder and the significance of the Church of Jesus Christ. And this is the thread as you read Bonhoeffer's many volumes, this is the thread that courses its way through his career, the significance of the church. The conviction that the church of Jesus Christ is of unspeakable importance. And it's strengthened as a young university student when Bonhoeffer makes an extended visit to Rome. Now, it's important at this point to compare Bonhoeffer with Luther. We 
We looked at Luther last time as we met for an even song, and Bonhoeffer, you need to know, was a Lutheran. He's a Lutheran through and through. He's not only a Lutheran by church affiliation, that is a Lutheran pastor, but Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran in the warp and woof of his being. Luther oozed out of Bonhoeffer. His, uh, his biographer, Eberhard Betke, and by the way, Eberhard Betke's 1,000 volume or, or page uh, tome on uh, Bonhoeffer is still the standard and definitive biography. There have been many biographies that have come out on Bonhoeffer. None of them have yet, um, have yet uh, made Betke's biography obsolete in any sense. Betke admits that Bonhoeffer loved Luther more than any other character in church history. Bonhoeffer himself boasts that at one point he had collected every single book that had been written about Luther and possessed it in his his library. But if any of you know, when Luther went to Rome as a young man, newly entered into the monastery, Luther was horrified. Luther was scandalized by what he saw. He saw all manner of ugliness at at every turn, emptiness and charade. Bonhoeffer, however, goes to Rome, and he's enchanted. He begins to see something of the true nature of Catholicism that he had never seen before. That is to say, Catholicism being the universality of the church. In Holy Week of 1924, Bonhoeffer writes this in his diary. He says, in Rome, I think I'm beginning to understand something of the church. And a big part of this revelation for Bonhoeffer, something that will deepen and expand in his thinking over his successive writings, is that the church is not a place of immaterial philosophical speculation. But the church is a place of concrete experience of the divine in my neighbor. A community of love, he called it, the Liebesgemeinschaft, a place where I truly encounter Jesus Christ in the concrete reality of a community, a structure that is defined by this, being for each other and being with each other, miteinander with each other, fureinander for each other. And apart from this concrete church, me being for you and you acting for me, apart from this, Christ simply is not known because Christ for Bonhoeffer exists as church community. This is a phrase that you'll see again and again, Christus als Gemeinde existierend, Christ exists as church community. This is the idea that it's at the heart of Bonhoeffer's thinking, and he labors to develop it, develop it uh, for his readers. Well, Bonhoeffer continues to study. He studies at the University of Berlin, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation, which was on the sociology of uh, the sociology of the church. And it's here in his doctoral work that Bonhoeffer develops his central thesis that what makes me as a human being, that what makes me what I am is not that I'm a thinking agent, that is the old Cartesian formula, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, but what makes me, me, is that I relate ethically to the other. 
And only in the concreteness of that relationship do I find myself. And only in the concreteness of that relationship do I find Christ. And so you see, against the fierce individualism that characterized much of Bonhoeffer's world, he writes this in his dissertation. He says, God created man and woman directed towards one another. God does not desire a history of individual human beings, but he desires the history of a human community. Well, it would have been hypocritical for Bonhoeffer to spin out all this intellectual yarn in the academy and to continue to weave this vast tapestry of metaphysical speculation for a small coterie of his, uh, his fellow academics. But Bonhoeffer doesn't do that. He's so seized by his own ideas that he plunges himself into the concrete experience of the church. And to the end, Bonhoeffer was always a pastor. So having completed his doctoral dissertation, he moves, of all places, he moves to Barcelona, Spain, to a German-speaking church where he labors amongst God's people as an assistant pastor. He had already worked while he was in his doctoral studies as a Sunday school teacher in Germany, but now in Spain he takes up the full context of parish life, the committee meetings, the, the, uh, the bereavements, the visitation the preparation for divine service. And uh, even though here in Spain he's cut off from all the academic life that he's known hitherto, and even though the pastor over him, he's assistant pastor at this time, even though the pastor over him is utterly incompetent, Bonhoeffer records that in the year that he was there in Spain, he and the senior pastor never once discussed a theological idea, let alone a religious question. He was a man, Bonhoeffer said, who preferred a good glass of wine and a good cigar to a bad sermon. Even so, Bonhoeffer's sense of the importance of the church and of the significance of pastoral ministry only grow. And even though he preached often over the heads of these uh, Spaniard Germans, he did so with increasing zeal and passion. There are records of, of Bonhoeffer preaching passionately. And Bonhoeffer never forgot the primacy of preaching in the church. Well, in 1929, Bonhoeffer returns to Germany to complete what's called a habilitation. This is a postdoctoral uh, dissertation that qualifies him to be a professor or a teacher at the university. And this habilitation he calls act and being. Now, the, the, uh, the, uh, the original dissertation is hard enough to read. Act and being uh, is, I think, even more, even more uh, difficult and profound. But here, Bonhoeffer continues to develop his ideas surrounding individuality and his ideas surrounding community. And Bonhoeffer pulls no punches here when it comes to the problem of individuality. It reminds me, in fact, of C.S. Lewis. If any of you have read his, his wonderful book, Experimented Criticism, it's the one book that usually C.S. Lewis fans fail to read. His little book on how to read a book, where, where Lewis has that incredibly potent line that literature heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. That is, individuality is a wound. And Bonhoeffer continues with this idea that individualism, especially as it had become known in the philosophical West and in the writings of Hegel, individualism is a disease. 
And so in act and being, Bonhoeffer writes this, he says, to be an Adam means to be in untruth. It means to be turned in upon oneself. Human beings have torn themselves loose from community with God and therefore also from other human beings. In fact, Bonhoeffer will elsewhere say that in the fall, we turn away from creatureliness. We are robbed of our creatureliness, he says. And what Bonhoeffer is doing here, he's returning to the old Reformation insight that the problem of sin is the problem of a heart turned in upon itself. Cor in curvatus ad se. The heart turns in entirely upon itself through the fall. And so Bonhoeffer says, and and if you've read the Reformers, you see this again and again, the problem of sin is sheer egocentricity. The problem of sin is that we are purely egocentric. This is total depravity. The problem of the fall is that we now understand freedom as being freedom for me, freedom for self, the achieving of my dreams, the fulfillment of my desires, the realization of my will. I am free when my will can do whatever it wants to do with no limits. Freedom, the fallen heart says, is the elimination of limit. And fallen Adam has lost the true sense of freedom because sin has robbed him of the image of God, Bonhoeffer says. And the image of God is the image of perfect freedom. But what is the image of God? And what does the freedom of God look like, Bonhoeffer says? Well, he says, it is not freedom for self. He writes in Act and Being, God's freedom is just this, that he binds himself to us. He gives himself to human beings. God is free for us. And God binds himself to flesh and bone as a baby in the lap of a terrified young virgin and in the presence of an impoverished carpenter. (laughs) This is the definition of freedom, Bonhoeffer says, God with us and God for us. This is sheer life. And so freedom for Bonhoeffer has everything to do with limit. We just sang that tonight. I am free because I am bound. And that limit for Bonhoeffer has everything to do with the person that I know and that I relate to in my community of faith. The person that I am free to be with, Mitteinander. And the person that I am free to be for, Führeinander and the person in whom I encounter the living Christ, the person, the limit in whom I encounter sheer life, he says. In my brother and in my sister, I truly encounter Christ. For when I do the least of these things to my brethren, I do it unto him. And Bonhoeffer's understanding of the manner in which I encountered Jesus in my brother and in my sister 
is a truth that needs to be recaptured by many of us in the 21st century. Well, Bonhoeffer spends time in his early 30s lecturing in the U.S. There's some interesting stories about him at an Ethiopian uh, Abyssinian uh, black church uh, in, uh, in uh, New York. And uh, he also spends time in London pastoring two German-speaking churches. But the most important activities for us tonight to consider with respect to Bonhoeffer were his commitment to the underground seminaries in Germany for the training of faithful pastors. The church in Germany, as many of you know, had largely collapsed in the 30s. Both Protestant and Catholic had surrendered to, and they had allied themselves with National Socialism. In fact, it's one of the most dismal and bleak and tragic moments of the church in the last 2,000 years. It is a very poor showing indeed for Christians in the 30s and in the 40s of Germany. Well, there arose in Bonhoeffer's time a revolt. There there arose a a reaction against this ungodly alignment with the ungodly ideals and ideology of the National Socialist Party. And in 1934, in Barman, a declaration was drafted and adopted and proclaimed and signed by a number of very important theologians, namely among them, uh, most notably, Karl Barth, and uh, the document began by openly affirming the doctrines of the Reformation. We believe the creeds of the Reformation, and in so many words, it rejected outright and unequivocally any subservience of the church to an idolatrous state, or any state for that matter. This was called the Confessing Church Movement, and the movement that was quickly deemed illegal by the Nazi party in Germany. And that that, uh, movement, the Confessing Church, asks Bonhoeffer to lead as a, a director to lead an illegal seminary. We need you, Bonhoeffer, to help us to train faithful pastors in word and in sacrament. Bonhoeffer does this. It's very dangerous for him to do so, but he goes ahead and he does this first in a place called Zingst, and then in a town called Finkenwalde. It's here in the context of being a seminary director that Bonhoeffer writes two of his most profound and important works. One is called Life Together, which we find embedded in the title of this lecture. Here in Life Together, Bonhoeffer aims at developing a genuine spiritual community in Finkenwalde that is a community that is for each other, and a community that is with each other. A life together that's centered on word and sacrament, a life of prayer and of reflection and of study and of work, and most importantly, a life of confession. And if you've read Life Together, I trust that you've been profoundly moved by what Bonhoeffer has to say about a community that is able to confess its sins. He writes this, he says, the final breakthrough to true Christian community might not happen. This is very important for us to hear tonight. The final breakthrough to community might not happen precisely because we enjoy community with one another as pious believers, but not with one another as those lacking piety. 
as sinners. For the pious community allows no one to be a sinner. Hence, all have to conceal their sins from themselves and from the community. We are not allowed to be sinners. Many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were to suddenly turn up among them the pious. And so we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and trapped in hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, sinners. He goes on to say, the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, it confronts us with the truth. The gospel says, you are a great, ungodly, unholy sinner. Now, therefore, come as sinner that you are to your God who loves you. You cannot hide from God. The mask that you wear in the presence of other people won't get you anywhere in the presence of God. God wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you as you are. And he goes on to say, and I think this is especially apropos in our day, the greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot comprehend what this one thing is. Sin. Psychological wisdom knows what need and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the ungodliness of the human being. It does not know that human beings are ruined by sin and healed only by forgiveness. In the presence of a psychologist, I can only be sick. In the presence of another Christian, I can be a sinner. Now, lest we think that Bonhoeffer was content to remain an unaltered sinner, Finkenwalde was also the place where he wrote that other great book of his, his well, the place where he lectured on uh, what would become a book, what we know as the cost of discipleship in the German Nachfolge, following after, following Christ. This was published later on, but he, he gave the lectures at Finkenwalde. And here in the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer attacks head on, the idea that grace is easy and that the life of grace is no more than a life of inertia. There is true grace, he writes, and then there is cheap grace. Cheap grace, he writes, is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Church community without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And above all, Bonhoeffer recognized here that for grace to be true grace, it has to be costly for us. Above all, he writes, grace is costly. Why? because it, cost, it was costly to God. You were bought with a price, and nothing can be cheap, which was costly to God. And yet, as he writes, like ravens, we have gathered around the carcass of cheap grace 
a religion that makes no demand upon our day-to-day lives. Well, Bonhoeffer would soon come face-to-face with those very demands. As the 30s drew to a close, Bonhoeffer became increasingly disenchanted and disillusioned with the effectiveness of the confessing church in Germany. On Hitler's 50th birthday, the Ministry of the Church Affairs demanded that all German pastors declare their unhesitating loyalty and allegiance to Hitler. And to Bonhoeffer's great dismay, most of the pastors in the confessing church happily obliged without resistance. (laughs) And so Bonhoeffer changes gears. And Bonhoeffer enters the life of political resistance. He became a spy for the underground resistance, which was working overtime to smuggle Jews out of Germany. And in the process, Bonhoeffer became aware of the great horror of what was happening to the Jews in the concentration camps. And he was so horror-struck and enraged as a man who had learned to be with one another and for one another, that he gave himself to a movement that was plotting to assassinate Hitler. And it's these activities eventually that come to light and they lead to his eventual arrest. And the last two years of Bonhoeffer's life was spent as a prisoner of the Third Reich. And let's not romanticize that whatsoever. Six by nine in a concrete cell, Bonhoeffer spent the last two years of his life until he had to go to the concentration at Buchenwald when it became much worse for him. And these lives for Bon, these years for Bonhoeffer were times of excruciating hardship. On the outside, on the exterior, Bonhoeffer was an encouragement and a source of consolation to his fellow prisoners. He seemed so strong. He seemed so self-controlled and content. But when he closed the door on his cell, the demons came and he became that afflicted and lonely and grief-filled man at times ridden with anxiety. And so it's especially meaningful to me that at the very end of his life, Bonhoeffer's faith never faltered. On April 3rd, 1945, Bonhoeffer was loaded on a truck to the extermination camp at Flossenburg. And en route, the truck broke down and Bonhoeffer was asked to lead a prayer service for his fellow prisoners. Well, he turned to the lectionary, the Lutheran lectionary, And the lection for that day was Isaiah 53.5. By his wounds, we are healed. And then Bonhoeffer turned to the next lection from 1 Peter 1.3. By his great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's here that we have uh, recorded the last of Bonhoeffer's words, a message that he wanted delivered to his dear friend in England, the Bishop of Chichester. Tell him, Bonhoeffer said, that our victory is certain. This is the end for me. But this is the beginning of my life. 
And on Monday morning, April 9, 1945, between 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning, someone saw Bonhoeffer kneel on the floor and begin to pray fervently to God. And then he climbed the steps of his gallows and he stopped for another short prayer. And Bonhoeffer was hanged a month before the war was over. One observer who witnessed his death wrote, I've never witnessed anyone so entirely submitted to the will of God. But if Bonhoeffer could have heard this observation, I think he would say this. I think he would say, I didn't do it alone. I couldn't have done it alone. There is no room to boast, he wrote in his doctoral dissertation as a young man. There is no room to boast about our solitary relationship with God because our strength comes to us through the community. We will never know what has come to us through the fervent intercessions of others. And through his life, Bonhoeffer came to be more and more persuaded of this one thing, that the sheer life of Jesus Christ to give me strength in the face of death is only available to me through the people of God in the church. And so let me conclude tonight with Bonhoeffer's prophetic word to us about the church of Jesus Christ. And this I've taken from the words of one of his early sermons when he was just 22 years old. Bonhoeffer says this, There is a word that to Protestants has the sound of something infinitely banal, something more or less indifferent and superfluous, a word that does not make a person's heart beat any faster, a word often associated with feelings of boredom, a word that in any event does not lend wings to our religious feelings. Woe to us if this word, the word church, does not soon acquire significance for us again. Consider, he says, what it means that the world is an altar at which millions of prayers are offered to heaven, that not a second passes without this people lifting up its hands and pleading mercy for us, that the hearts of the entire church community quake and they pray for the salvation of God's people and that perhaps one or another from our own intimate circle of friends presents our soul before God day after day, interceding on its behalf. Who knows whether this person or that has not kept a vigil for us through the night, kneeling before God, and that it is not our own merit that preserves us, but God's unfathomable grace and love for our neighbor and for us. In the Lord's Prayer, we do not say, My Father... We say, our Father, we do not say my debts, but we pray for our debts. None of us, he writes, knows where we suddenly get the strength we did not have before, strength that we didn't even pray for, 
We need only know one thing, namely, that we owe such strength, not least, to the prayer of the congregation that represents us before God. And so Bonhoeffer says, none of us is alone in the struggles of this life, on the gallows in Flossenburg, when we cry out on our sickbed, abandoned by all help, when we become old and lonely and homeless without our family, without comfort, when we struggle with death on our deathbed, when we cannot get a grip on ourselves in the face of grief and suffering, no matter how alone we are, the church prays for us. It stands with us before God. It invisibly takes us by the hand, and the church comforts us. It makes misery our home by surrounding us and encompassing us in love. You are... Bonhoeffer says, the body of Christ. You are the church of God. Behold and be astonished and give thanks. There is but one remedy for our age, an age that is so feeble and so weak and so pathetically small and pitiful and homeless, back to the church back to where one member bears the other member in love, where one lives the life of the other, where there is a community in God, with each other and for each other, encountering sheer life in my brother and in my sister. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.